Welcome to the 253rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion with Hannah Zeven, author of the new book, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. And just a quick note, I'm really pleased to announce that pretty soon we're going to have a disaster research portal for COVID calls. It'll be a website where all of the previous discussions will be archived in video, audio, and transcript, and there'll be invitations for new work with this archive, including essays and artwork coming out real soon. So stay tuned for that. As of today, April 5th, 2021, there are 2,854,727 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has climbed to 555,002 deaths. In Italy, 111,030 people have lost their lives from COVID-19. And in Russia, the number is 99,049. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Anne Stefanski, a DC area therapist with an appetite for life, dies of COVID-19. This was written by Anais Shin and published June 10th, 2020 in the Washington Post. In the 1970s, Anne Stefanski was working at a community clinic in Washington when a teenage boy came in saying he was depressed and suicidal. In the course of counseling him, Stefanski learned he had no way of getting home. The boy lived near her, so she offered him a lift. On the way, her brakes failed, but they made it thanks to some creative use of a parking brake. When the teenager got out of her car, she told a colleague later he said he was no longer feeling suicidal. The harrowing ride had made him realize that he valued his life after all. Stefanski, who was then a clinical social worker, went on to become a therapist recognized in the D.C. region for her innovation. After about a decade working at government-funded clinics, she switched to private psychotherapy, which in the late 1970s was still a relatively new frontier for social workers and a field dominated by psychologists and psychiatrists. Believing that she and her colleagues had valuable insights to offer, Stefanski helped set up a novel kind of practice where psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers collaborated as equals. As a co-founder of the Greater Washington Society of Clinical Social Work, she also advocated for changes that made it easier for social workers to provide psychotherapy independently. Anne was at the forefront. She was amazing about being able to see what was coming, said Barbara Sutter who worked with her at the cooperative practice and recounted the story of the failed breaks. In the 1990s, Stefanski brought new therapeutic approaches and training programs to the Washington School of Psychiatry, where she taught for many years. In 2013, the school honored her with a special award for her contributions to the field. Stefanski died on May 8, 2020 of COVID-19 at Olney Assisted Living in Olney, Maryland. She was 93. Anne Edelman Stefanski was born on July 21, 1926, in Reading, Pennsylvania, and grew up in Flowertown, Pennsylvania, the youngest of three children. Her parents were active in the labor movement. In 1940, her father became a lobbyist for textile workers and relocated the family to the Washington area. Anne attended Western High School in the district, then Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York, where she met her future husband, Ben Stefanski. 
A year after Anne's graduation from Sarah Lawrence, she and Ben married and moved to Chicago, where Ben finished his PhD in economics and Anne earned a master's degree in literature. Ben then, ben then embarked on a State Department career that would take the couple first to Mexico and later to Bolivia, where Ben served as U.S. ambassador under President John F. Kennedy. Along the way, they adopted three children, Kate, Tom, and Evan, and settled in a large stucco home in Chevy Chase that was always full of people, including long-term house guests. At various times, Kate recalled, we had a communist living in our basement for a while, two people from Mexico, my parents sponsored for citizenship, and someone from France. Anne liked having people around, said family friend Esther Brudo. It was not that she was seeking some intellectual dabbling or anything. She enjoyed diversity. She didn't care about social status or financial success. When her children were young, she set up a cooperative nursery in the house, which led to her earning a social work degree from Howard University in her 40s. A career helping people was a perfect fit for her, Bruto said. She loved working for the general good. Anne took an interest in family therapy early in her career and later in different forms of short-term therapy. She saw clients at her office near DuPont Circle and then at her home well into her 70s. Outside work, her daughter said she had an appetite for life. She inhaled art. She loved all kinds of music, her daughter said. After Ben died in 1999, Anne couldn't abide an empty house and began renting rooms to graduate students. She enjoyed talking to them about their studies and their plans. As her eyesight and hearing grew worse, she employed caregivers who also found themselves under her wing. One of them, Alicia George, wrote on the Keeper website that when she met Anne in 2015, the octogenarian immediately became my biggest cheerleader. She would sometimes command George, who was a student at the time, to take naps. You can't care for me and study effectively if you do not care for yourself first, she would say. George also spent a lot of time cooking with Anne. Kate recalls that when her mother got up in the morning, she loved to talk about what she was going to make that day and eat. She was 90, Kate said, and she could eat me under the table. In July, Anne moved to an assisted living facility closer to Kate's home. On May 6, 2020, Kate said, the facility called to say that her mother's oxygen levels were low and they were calling in a hospice. Kate would learn a few days after her mother's death that Anne tested positive for the coronavirus. She didn't have a lot of coughing or symptoms, Kate said. She was very hardy. Knowing that her mother did not like being alone, Kate got permission to have Anne's caregivers come by. George arrived Friday evening and was there playing classical music and holding her hand when Anne died a few hours later. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Hannah Zeven. Hannah Zeven is a lecturer in the Departments of English and History at University of California, Berkeley, and a faculty affiliate of the University of California at Berkeley's Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society. Her research focuses on the coordinated histories of technology and medicine. Zeven is the author of The Distance Cure, a history of teletherapy, which is coming out this year with MIT Press. And she's at work on her second book, Mother's Little Helpers, Technology in the American Family. Other work has appeared or is forthcoming in Differences, a journal of feminist cultural studies, Logic Magazine, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Slate, and many other venues. Hannah Zeven, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's an honor. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and what it's looking like there, pandemic-wise, vaccination-wise. Great. Yeah. I'm calling from Berkeley, which is in Alameda County in California, in Northern California. In terms of vaccination, um, a quarter of folks in our county have been fully vaccinated, which puts us in the U.S. behind the national average of, of 30 some percent. And anecdotally, I'm from New York City and did my graduate training there. And so I'm very attached to what's happening in the city. And here in the Bay Area, we are behind where New York City is in terms of opening up who's uh, now able to access vaccination. But across the Bay uh, in San Francisco, 50 percent 
of people 16 and older have been vaccinated, which of course will impact this county as well. Um, the bay is not some kind of container really that way. Um, and you know, we're in the, this is the American story. Uh, cases came down a little, so we're reopening a lot. Um, and uh, I don't know, the school bus started running this week past where I live, which is the first time I've seen the school bus since uh, early March of last year. And that's a big deal for folks. Um, music venues are opening. Uh, at some capacity. And, you know, we're now turning towards, in education towards the fall. Um, and UC Berkeley has sort of announced that we will all be in the classroom unless we teach more than 250 students and with some very few medical exceptions. And that's the big set of conversations. Do you have a sense at Berkeley what the conversation is like around vaccination and compulsory vaccination for students who want to come back? Or is that not in the discussion not right now? Not yet. It's just that really a few days ago, there was an announcement that that's the plan. Summer will be remote. Fall will be in person, save for the first week so that folks can test. And of course, there's immediate worry about uh, inclusion in the classroom. Will we teach hybrid classes? Will they eventually move offline, uh, online? Because also, of course, uh, as colleagues were just saying a few minutes ago in a meeting I was in, we'll also have our fire season when uh, school shuts down anyway. Um, and we've been told it will be a very bad one, likely, as it is now every year. Yeah. Well, I hope you can avoid that, but um, those disasters converging was a big feature of, of last year's problem as well. Just to underline one quick thing you said there, the noticing the school bus, hearing it and seeing it on the street, that's really, that's really something. Um, there, I, I presume, even though the vaccination numbers are still, you said 25% in Alameda County, teachers are in that mix? Yeah. Yes. The teachers are in that mix. And I, when I walk past the bus stop, there's one child. I, I happen to know the family kind of from being around in the neighborhood, which is all we've really done this year and really? so on. Um, but it's one child, and it was not one child you know, a year ago. Right. Well, thanks for that update from the Bay Area. Let's turn to talking about your work. Um, thrilled to see you're having this new book coming out, The Distance Cure, A History of Teletherapy. And let's just start generally. There's been so much reporting and discussion this year about the way that mental health stress has accompanied the pandemic, the various interventions that are at play. Um, you give us a historical foregrounding to thinking about this time, which I'm really pleased to learn about. How do you come to this topic in the first place and sort of outline the book for us, if you will? Thanks so much. Um, in the summer of 2014, I was beginning to think about the ways to bring together my investments uh, in the history of technology and media and my investments in the history of psychology. And um, I, you know, have worked on media mediation and the ways that technology is charged with doing what we're doing right now, which is convening across distance in ways that it would not be possible otherwise. And what do those channels carry? Um, and I was earning a PhD in an amazing pluralistic media studies department at NYU, the Department of Media, Culture and Communication, which allowed me to think about media and psychology synthetically, historically, uh, not in terms of media psychology. Um, and in parallel was getting involved more and more deeply with American psychoanalysis um, in terms of writing and editing. And the two things, a media history of therapy um, presented itself as first just mediated therapy. And then I really became invested in this litmus test for relating across a distance, this vulnerable uh, and intimate and unique artificial relationship um, and all of its many cases across time, which as I started to dig in, didn't yet really exist. And so I, I decided I wanted to make it. Um, it's, it, so you go back to just, just a little bit more in the earlier part, how far back do you, do you trace the story? The book opens um, in 1890 with Sigmund Freud himself. And so one of the revisions to the history of psychology that I offer in the book is that Therapy and teletherapy have existed for about the same amount of time. It was not one and then the other. Uh, I make the, the argument um, 
that Freud himself, his analysis, which is called his self-analysis because he reported it in letter writing to his best friend turned enemy, which is a thing Freud did have a best friend who became his enemy, um, Wilhelm Fleece. It's all written in letter. And so I revise that and say, that's just an analysis. It's a teleanalysis. It's not somehow not. And then Freud also worked with uh, a child, for instance, little Hans, over letter writing, a child who had been diagnosed with agoraphobia. So I read this early epistolary history of teletherapy through uh, World War II and Fanon's work uh, in Algeria on the radio, um, through you know the psychological call-in show of the 1970s and 80s, all the way up to attempts to make an automated therapist, e-therapy on Cornell's campus in the 1980s, and through all the way uh, to June of last year uh, in the start of the pandemic in the coda of the book. So it's really interesting because we have this sort of classic model. I mean, even just with a little pencil sketch, you could convey to people the way we think about what therapy is. I think of how many New Yorker cartoons I see, you know, the patient on the couch and the, and the therapist behind them. Um, but that seems to leave out some important chapters in the, in the history of the development of uh, mental health therapy, but also it's, it's just incomplete in terms of the possibilities for modes of therapy. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And along several lines. So I argue that teletherapy was for a long time therapy shadow form. So it's not represented in the New Yorker cartoons, which I have consumed my whole life. Um, except when we also cross with this question of the representation of technology, right? Like, is the computer a dog in those famous sort of cartoons as well? Um, and so part of what the work was to, in the book is to reconfigure teletherapy, though a shadow form, um, as actually being a primary site and form of care for all sorts of crises is what really began to emerge. So even though the standard um, and the upheld standard was the in-person you know, scenario, which is considered better, it's considered richer, actually there is a whole history of both radical and problematic um, you know, uses of these technologies to do that work off the couch, out of the consulting room, in the clinic, and somewhere else, two places. Have those somehow been devalued? And I guess you'd have to take them case by case, but in, at a sort of a, a higher level, I guess that there seems to be some convergence about the one-to-one -one in person relationship being the way that therapy actually must must happen. So I guess I'm curious when that convergence sort of settled and what that meant to the other forms of therapy, teletherapy. Well, I mean, it was for many reasons really moving to hear Stefanski's obituary with which you opened. One thing that leapt out to me immediately is that her life story at work, obviously it's also an obituary and, and so it's a, you know, a limited image, but that, that sort of story of then social work opens and the strictures open is also really an important part of the story in the U.S. context. And the book is transnational, but predominantly U.S. based, which is that we've seen a real devaluation of therapeutic labor across the 20th century into the 21st. And part of that is because it's become feminized. Um, so we've seen um, both really, again, radical uses of rescinding the expert and saying, actually, we're a community and we're gonna do this care for ourselves. We know how to care best. We've also seen um, the apification of mental health care and uh, the move away from licensed professionals or even calling therapy therapy, calling it other things, which we can talk about. Um, and so I think, in fact, there hasn't been a settling until the pandemic when um, suddenly teletherapy is no longer the shadow form, it's the form and so, again, we think about teletherapy as either apps for the iPhone or, you know, the private practice scenario, your analyst, your therapist, and you doing it um, on Zoom, on FaceTime. Um, and so I wonder what will happen after. I have thoughts about that, too, and the aftermath that, of course, is problematic to periodize that way. Um, sure. But, yeah, the, the opening up of strictures of training has been a major a feature of all of this, and then the turn to technology to augment it. I, I definitely want to take a 
uh, a turn here in a second and talk about the pandemic. But one more thing, just in terms of the historical breadth of your work, I read an interview with you in which you said, um, we've been in a crisis of, as is quoting you, we've been in a crisis of a crisis of access to mental health care, really since mental health care professionalized. I thought that was a really interesting statement. What did you mean by that? Thank you. Yeah, of course. It's like that's the soundbite. But behind that is, um, you know, I was really referencing the crises that have arisen since the late 1800s that run right, right through the book. So it was not something I knew before I began to really research that crisis almost always attends teletherapy and teletherapy almost always attends crisis. It is a moment where people say, let's license something in emergency, we'll figure it out later. And it's a, a moment where these forms of care tend to come into the foreground, not always because um, distance is mandated, like in our moment, although also that. And so one of the crises is not a national crisis uh, or a global pandemic, but the crisis of training enough mental health care clinicians to serve those in need, make that care affordable, and then connecting with those would-be patients so that that care can be provided. And it was really important to me in the research that we not uh, automatically assume that the appification of mental health care is in response to some kind of like new stimulus and therefore maybe only the new answer uh, in a sort of quote unquote big tech moment. Um, Instead, I returned several times uh, and in Molly Fisher in, in New York Magazine makes mention of this to this beautiful speech Freud gave in 1919, right, which is at the close of World War I in the middle of the Spanish influenza. And Freud is speaking to his colleagues who are his friends in person for the first time since the war began, which is something I can now feel differently, what that must have been like. Mm. And the speech is called Lines of Advance in Psychoanalysis. And what he says is that um, after thinking about the impacts of the war on the theory, that now those who've been excluded from psychoanalysis must now be included uh, Mm -hmm. and enfolded somehow into care. And there he says, quote, that he's gonna alloy the gold of psychoanalysis with a copper of suggestion, which is Mm -hmm. hypnosis. And so he's going back to like something really dusty in his toolkit. And this is a quiet running theme in my book, right? Which is how do we alloy care Um, now the supposed gold maybe of psychodynamic technique here with silicon or a telephone wire. And what is that Mm. alloy really doing? Um, But that's been a problem the whole time. We've never had a kind of good, oh, we have enough people to care for these people. In the U.S. especially, it's just never been the case. I'm just struck by that because it plays out in so many different domains about disasters that you know the problems that emerge as acute are truly chronic in most instances and then we'll be watching to see what happens after um, when policymakers and I think people generally would like to get back to something they consider normal but if there was in this case a deficit of care as normal we've been shown that <laughs> so now um, for over well over a year. So what does that mean for us? Let's let's go back to the earlier period of the pandemic. You're one of the people I've spoken with um, who I get a sense from the minute you saw news coming from China, you must have been thinking, okay, this is going to be disruptive. And if we're at home, it's going to, I mean, I'm thinking back to those early lockdown images when they shut down Wuhan. It must have immediately sprung to your mind that there was historical resonance with your work. Um, and yes, I, I mean, I think early my family was preparing and my larger family was um, maybe re- felt that I was a bit being a, a Cassandra or something, but now they've all, <laughs> they've all uh, seen, unfortunately, right? That this has been what's happened. Yeah, we were preparing to go to New York City to visit family. And I just said, no, I won't be getting on a plane. Um, And also what's been true in that early moment in the therapy world was that every single trick in the teletherapy history playbook was used almost immediately. Uh, And it was kind of dizzying and wonderful to see that um, that was an immediate move that clinicians, uh, that patients, that activists wanted to make was to try and shore up some forms of care 
given that so many services were going to be shut down. And then something that surprised me that was not um, a resonance was that there was also huge governmental support uh, and institutional support for that shift, including from insurance. Uh, four out of five big insurance companies overnight in March, early March, uh, made teletherapy out of pocket free um, for that's like 130 million Americans. It doesn't mean 130 million Americans were in treatment, but suddenly overnight, and that's still the case. I mean, this was a massive change. That, I mean, there's so many things happening there. Let's just take that last one. How do you account for that in a healthcare system uh, in which the United States is not very well known for insurers just sort of opening up the coffers uh, quickly or even slowly? How, is there some previous work that had been done that indicated in a moment like, like this they needed to do that? How, how does something like that take place so quickly? I've I've actually I've asked a few journalist friends like I've pleaded for some kind of investigative piece on that synchronized four out of five um, and and also why not the fifth right when it's near majority um, no as you point out we not only are we not known for a healthcare insurance you know system it's been a huge problem in the pandemic because you know insurance in this country is so deeply tied to being employed and we've lost you know. Uh, very unevenly, you know, millions and millions and millions of jobs. And so people have lost their health care as well, um, sometimes on time delay and sometimes less so. So this has been, I think, really, in a way, you could see this as a lifeline. Um, and on the other hand, you have to be able to make use of it. And this is a tension I try and draw out in my book and in my research elsewhere, where, where concepts like access, we can flatten it much too quickly by saying, oh, insurance did this, so then we could make use of it somehow. And that's not the case, right? Um, and certainly not in, in this country. And it, it very much, it, you know, Pache Alondra Nelson, this is a mirror to society. So medical redlining uh, and insurance and digital redlining all intersect for teletherapy. So the, the insurers turn around and say, okay, uh, you said a large number of them say, okay, this is going to be available for people. People should make use of that. But then it doesn't happen magically. We come back to this problem of not only the workforce um, for therapy and then also um, the access part, which is the sort of kind of really creative move you've made here is to merge those two together and say, we can't talk about the one without the other in terms of technological access. I remember, of course, it, back in March of 2020, the um, digital divide discussion, which for many people, they never stopped tracking it. And for many families, they never stopped living it. The mainstream press rediscovered it. Oh, we've all moved to Zoom. We've all moved online. But you're telling us that in some parts of America, a lot of people don't have the internet. What's that about? That, was that playing out also in the teletherapy discourse? Yeah, and, and it has for a long time. I mean, I think that one thing we saw over the course of the last year is that for some people, there was a lot of surprise, right? The same sort of discoveries, um, whether it's, you know, you know, white supremacy, systemic violence, and so on, and, you know, mental health care, uh, um, medical redlining, environmental racism, the digital divide, so-called, all of this, you know, for some, it's like completely new. And for others and people who've been working to address these issues, not at all. Um, yeah, this is a problem and it's been one. So the most successful teletherapy projects in my mind, and also a colleague, Jeremy Green, who has a, a brilliant book on the history of telemedicine, which will be out next year. Um, points to this in his research on telemedicine all the time that, in fact, the most successful campaigns for this stuff involve building infrastructures almost every time or understanding habitual media use very specifically and saying, oh, but that that group already has it. Whether that's, you know, the dependency on the BBC radio in World War II England, which meant that the, there was an explosion of radio licenses, or um, I think one of the most uh, moving cases to research the suicide hotline here in the Bay Area, um, where the telephone was going to be available. Uh, and so that could be used, this common appliance. We didn't necessarily figure that out for this pandemic. Um, so we've seen instead a multiplicity. 
and and that hope to reach that way. So maybe we can talk a little bit about um, some of the different concerns that people have had. I mean, this has been a disaster in so many different layers and, and meeting points, but um, some of which you might expect in any kind of disaster situation, anxiety, um, for example, um, fear, uh, but there's been additional ones, isolation. Um, and I've spoken with uh, folks on COVID calls and talked about, you know, the disruption to drug abuse, substance abuse, um, communities, um, talking about problems, you know, for pregnant mothers and, you know, the communities that they rely on. So, you know, there's been so many needs for mental health services at this time. And then there's some that are sort of like seem unique to this pandemic, um, the isolation, Zoom fatigue, uh, so many different different things. I, I don't know how you even keep track of all that or how you make sense of that, but maybe you can tell me a little bit about what you've been watching in that regard. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a painful area. Um, and it's really different for different individuals based on this multitude of factors that we've just been talking about. Um, so right to bring back that idea from Alondra Nelson, mirror to society, um, and that's part of mental health. So as I've written elsewhere, you know, the trauma of COVID um, is a little bit, it's double. There's the sort of traditional trauma, and then there's also this, um, preemptive anticipatory looking ahead trauma. Uh, so trauma we think of as having happened in the past and then the feeling is later. Uh, this is like a double. And so I think part of it has been that COVID uh, is going to intersect with um, you know, this whole series of problems, um, whether it's um, how to keep the continuity of groups, uh, whether it's substance abuse or like Al-Anon, all of which has been meeting online and flourishing this year. Um, but also early on had to deal with Zoom bombing again and again and again, right? In those kinds of interruptions. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are these huge other questions that we haven't yet really touched on, like labor is a huge question and childcare, lack of touch with isolation and loneliness. But in my work, the thing that seems to come up again and again is the Zoom fatigue, precisely because it's both a kind of general feeling um, but also because it keeps coming up in the therapy context from practitioners. Um, and it's usually only talked about as a human and their device, and that devices are exhausting. And there are studies that back this play, um, that there's something about the blue light, which you know I don't think many people really enjoy, um, that the blue light and you know this looking at your own face thing, which is really disconcerting to have to do all the time, um, and so on. Um, but I've also had some colleagues start to joke, right? Don't you remember in-person fatigue? That that we're part of what what is happening here is a speed up of labor, uh, and instead of attributing it, I think, to working conditions, this always being on feeling that meetings can be scheduled anytime over the weekend at night, and sometimes they have to be for those of us doing childcare. Um, that this is now suddenly somehow a Zoom-based phenomenon, right? That Zoom makes me tired. Uh, and I try and push back on that a little bit in, in the book to say that we're exhausted because we've kept going as normal or intensified during a global pandemic, not necessarily only because of the blue light. Um, and that we're exhausted because the you know we never got it together to pay people to stay at home. We're not slowing down. And for many workers, um, whether they're essential workers or academics or whomever, um, we're speeding up to meet some kind of demand uh, now that we're doing remote work. Um, and then that's even more intensified if you're not working remotely, I think, and still, you know, uh, going forward. So that's how I try and think about the specific one of COVID, which is the Zoom fatigue, for sure. It's, it's interesting to think with, with this particularly because, again, you know, just you were recounting your discussion with friends. And yeah, there's been a lot of things, um, you know, people have said, that, you know, under normal times, a lot of things weren't great either. We didn't necessarily like all this, you know, the pace of work and, and that. But there's, there is something about the pandemic that's exposed, that's created new harms, Yes, I think. And I think we have to leave space for that. I really worry that those are gonna get written out of the record. I mean, you wouldn't, that wouldn't be your job. You wouldn't do that, but I think others 
may forget some of these things. Is is a year or a year and a half long enough to really get a handle on something like this Zoom fatigue um, phenomenon? I mean, I think that it really, again, is going to it's going to have to do with which way one approaches it. There are going to be statistical studies about retina and light and quality of concentration. And all I'm trying to suggest is that it is precisely because of pandemic, but also the conditions underneath it that I think we can attach to these more concrete objects. There are lots of other you know, problems with uh, you know, employer software that's spying on you through the camera, all of this stuff too, uh, that subtends, I think, the feeling about Zoom, that demand to always be there and much, you know, oh, great, you're not commuting. That's two hours back to your work day, though no one statistically apparently <laughs> likes to commute. Um, so there, I think that that it's not about even splitting the difference. It's just inviting both pieces into the conversation. And of course, I worry along with you just as much about forgetting. Um, absolutely. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Hannah Zeeven. We're talking about teletherapy in the time of the, of the pandemic. And uh, Hannah, I just wanted to flag, I put it up on Twitter yesterday. I mean, you wrote this article for Slate, therapists are doing sessions in locked bathrooms while patients call in from their cars. This was a piece that appeared April 10th, so almost exactly a year ago. Uh, and people should really check this piece out because, number one, it's spot on in surfacing a lot of um, the different creative modes that therapists had to reach to to try to um, provide services in the middle of the shutdown across the country. But it's also just a brilliant time capsule of that time as well. And I, I guess I'd like to get you to sort of comment on it, maybe um, first what it's like to look back at, at that piece a year later. But also let's dive in a little bit to some of the creative ways, um, some really exciting and some maybe a little bit troubling that therapists had to turn to to reach their patients? I mean, uh, it is it is intense that it was a year ago and I, rep I was doing the reporting in March um, and it was in Slate's, you know, editing sphere for, for April. So it was really, really right away. I think I filed it right at the end of March. So we'd been in lockdown for a few weeks. Um, and that's what I mean. It was immediate, these ideas. Um, that if New York went into lockdown on like March 13th, uh, by a week later, um, these brilliant young people at um, Brooklyn Mines, which is a full service um, clinic, had started a call-in radio show, recalling all of these broadcast radio attempts to do therapy in other crises. Um, new hotlines uh, for various populations were immediately staffed and, and widely staffed. There were too many volunteers. As people wanted to participate and give their time. Um, individuals were figuring it out on listservs, right? I had never talked to a patient on FaceTime before. Is that HIPAA compliant? It turns out it was because all of uh, compliance issues were waived for all habitual media and so on. So this was all really rapid and immediate. And when I look back now, um, a lot of that continued. I think energy also abated. I think new forms stepped in, um, increased over the summer, right? Forms of mutual aid uh, from that long tradition that were turning towards mental health care and trying to combat loneliness, especially, or alienation, and so on. Yeah. Um, and now we're a year out and people are starting to go back. A couple of the things you talk about in the article, uh, it's kind of things I wouldn't have considered, but sort of privacy oriented. One is this concern that a, a person receiving therapy is now seeing inside the therapist's home, where usually... You know, so we think again about that classic model, you're in some sort of third space, which is not the therapist's home, it's not the patient's home, they're together um, in this other space. And it's a, it's a calm, comforting environment, but it's not someone's bedroom or kitchen. Um, that's, that's one thing. And then 
you know, some of the other things you, you wrote about, you know, a therapist who took to going into the bathroom, like trying to find a place where they could recreate to a certain extent, some sort of, some sort of privacy. I, I was really taken by that. Um, yeah, I think that that has remained an issue. Um, but with, so yes, right. Uh, lots of patients and analysts or therapists, or social workers are trying to figure out what to make of seeing the other one's kids, uh, seeing their pets, um, the call dropping, right? Which is like you try and get away from your family, but then you're in a bad cell signal spot and which is worse for the work. Um, and some have really worked to make it productive. What I've also heard anecdotally is that now a year later, no one's really thinking about it. That it's really the medium was so loud initially, and what what the sort of disruption produced in terms of architectures, and now it's old hat, which goes to your point about the forgetting, right? Um, and and not working with that disruption as a question so much anymore. Um, and then other folks were trying to make forms that weren't dependent on on seeing the inside or trying to figure out how to mediate a replica of the consulting room. And most folks turned to the phone. They got rid of the face to face thing um, and and reported, you know, much less exhaustion as well. well that's that's really interesting. I mean, uh, two points there you made one that the the distance, the use of technology to overcome distance was a huge problem until it wasn't, um, and that people adapted and, and coped. Again, a sort of coping period that I'm sure you'll be going back and trying to document as completely as you can. But also, the settling on the, on the telephone, can you say just a little bit more about that? Because there you find this sort of callback, that's very unintentional, um, <laughs> that's this, <good> though. <laughs> uh, talking back to a, an earlier period of time in which similar intervention surfaced. Yeah. Um, it's funny. This uh, last Friday, I gave a talk and afterwards uh, a few colleagues wrote, one of whom is in New York and had told me, uh, is a New York psychoanalyst who had told me that he had used teletherapy the last time for a really sustained period with patients at this number during the subway strike. Right, that this is not actually the first time um, by any means, even in, in a more recent lifetime, let alone in the lifetime of teletherapy. Um, so uh, is the phone this recourse to this old thing? Um, maybe also one of the major critiques of teletherapy pre-pandemic and certainly during it um, is that it's lesser. And there's a lot to talk about there, especially with the appification of mental health care and concierge therapy and all this. But um, one thing that I heard again and again across the whole year is actually a lot of clinicians find it more intimate and sometimes an excess of intimacy, like too much. And the phone, right, puts the patient's voice right here, uh, which is totally closer than face-to-face -face or on the couch, whichever way you're working. Um, and so there might have been something eventually relieving about the proximity of being in the ear. Uh, and of course, Freud liked it. He thought analysis was like a telephone call anyway. So in some ways, it's very old school. It's really interesting, though, they're pointing out, you know, that transition to teletherapy, it also, it wasn't somehow second rate, it somehow it was even more personal, uh, more immediate, I, uh, I could really, that's interesting to think with, I, I wonder, um, you know, just along these lines, you mentioned some of the concerns about, you know, apps, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, I guess, back up one step, concern that people have in any time they're using a new medium is that they're going to be recorded, that this is sort of a mode of surveillance. Um, I wonder how prevalent that concern has been, what therapists have done to meet it. Um, but then also let's talk to this issue about the apps and they've taken off. They, again, they pre-existed the pandemic, but they've really gone wild since then. Yeah. Um, these are wonderful questions. So the surveillance bit tends to come up mostly, I think, with the sort of overtly new media, you know, app-based, platform-based care. But, um, and so I have real concerns about that kind of surveillance and privacy. In the individual context, I think folks have really just negotiated it where it's come up. But uh, when I've asked, very few people have said, 
oh, now I'm on FaceTime. Are you recording me? Um, the same as you could be recording in the office, right? That that's just understood to be a sort of basic, what, pact of, of the whole thing. Um, so really it's when you migrate uh, and scale, right, to a different kind of institution or app where those worries about surveillance or privacy might come into be. And throughout the book, I'm really concerned um, with terms like care or intimacy or even empathy and thinking about what those positive terms might conceal and carry, um, including uh, the slippage of, you know, care into surveillance um, or violence based on surveillance. Uh, with the apps, I think that this is a, a big concern, right? I'm very worried about the slippage where we call a patient a user and suddenly a consumer. Um, and uh, there's a kind of pushing um, via something that's been true about teletherapy, right? This idea from Freud onwards, it's a democratic promise of access. And then hidden beneath that, um, I think, are the very scary things that um, have been reported on about these apps, and which I deal with quite extensively in the last two chapters of my book. Well, maybe you could tell us a, a little bit. I mean, we definitely want people to to read the book. Um, <laughs> of I'm not trying sure. to at all. Um, yeah, but that migration to the app, um, the harvesting of data, I, mean, I think it's fair to say people in general realize like, you know, social media isn't free. It appears to be. Um, but, you know, this, I mean, what a conundrum, because first of all, people might be in distress. And so are they going to read 10 pages of fine print to know how their data might be used? They might not. They might put that off till they feel better. And then then they begin to use the app and it becomes part of their life, part of their their coping. Yeah, I mean, I also right in the best of times, what is informed consent, right? In this, in terms of this, in terms of scrolling through the terms of service. Um, anecdotally, I asked my students about it, and the answer is just no. Um, let alone the person at the point of crisis who's turning to apps trying to figure it out. Um, this comes back. I mean, some of my concerns have to do with again these longer, big scale problems we were talking about job loss, right, earlier in the call. And many of these um, apps are marketed actually to employers. They cut out the individual this way. Um, and uh, that does several things, right? Um, they're interested in disrupting, this is the word, mental health care. And they collapse in doing so um, wellness with economic productivity. Uh, they, they address themselves uh, to the sort of small level crisis of the individual um, to get productive labor going on again. And quote after quote after quote from some of the CEOs of um, you know, teletherapy apps will say something like, we lose X billion dollars annually to depression uh, in terms of productivity. So treat your employer uh, employees. Um, we see this logic with Amazon Care, which is just you know expanded radically, this kind of double collapse. Um, so that's one thing I worry about. I deeply worry about um, the what Elizabeth Cotton calls the uberization of mental health care on the labor side, which mm -hmm. because it's there's like a fine graph that just shows we were already going this way. Um, and she does this great work under surviving work. Um, and you can follow that account on Twitter. And also the Psychotherapy Action Network uh, out of Chicago is doing really great work on that. Uh, so there are these problems for those employed on the platforms. Uh, that's the New York Magazine article deals with some of that. Uh, Todd Isaac, who writes for Forbes, Kashmir Hill, and the New York Times have all sort of paid attention to this. And then for patients, you know, um, patients we now suddenly call a user, uh, you might say, I really only want to speak with a woman. Uh, I have X reasons you don't even need to say. And they're like, sure, uh, this was came up in the New York Magazine article, but it's not the only time. And you get six results where it's uh, not women. Or, um, you know, you say, I need this kind of cultural competency. I'm, you know, that's one of the promises of telemedicine and teletherapy. Connect me with who I want to be connected to, even if we don't live in the same place and it won't happen, or um, you're promised unlimited text therapy, and actually not so much. So there's a lot of that which erodes trust. I think it's frustrating in this space that's supposed to be frictionless care, 
And then where does that person go from there? Uh, do they not ever get help? I mean, every time someone has a bad experience with care, which is understandable. I mean, care is really, this is why I'm interested in, in looking underneath the sort of sheen on that word. Um, I think it's harder to do it again. Uh, you don't want to be burned twice, so to speak, or three times or four times. There's so many things what you were just talking about. I mean, just come back to the um, labor side of it for a second. Do we have good evidence that in the pandemic, um, therapists <laughs> under the financial strain that it, everybody else has been under um, have turned to working on these apps to supplement um, you know, their incomes to make up for lost hours and visits in the in their home practices? You know, again, it's really a, a question that um, has to do with who and what you were doing before. Mm. Um, so anecdotally, it's like impossible to get an appointment with a therapist right now, right? Their hours are full. Um, that's what a lot of people are reporting. On the other hand, my colleagues uh, and people I've spoken to have just graduated from MSW just started their private practice, um, you know, just took out that lease on their office when the pandemic hit um, or a year before, two years before. Yeah. I mean, they have to, they have to do it somehow. Um, but then there's this rapid devaluation um, and it's been terrifying. Yeah. Um, so Elizabeth Cotton, I think is, is one of the best people to follow on that exact topic right now. And how would you evaluate, I mean, this is a bigger question, but just to even try to get into a little bit, evaluate the um, efficacy of mental health services under non-pandemic times versus the efficacy of the app. I guess another way to ask it is how do they prove that it works? Um, but I'm less interested in their proof of how it works than your proof of how it works or others who are attentive analytically to, again, this problem of the crisis because standards change in the crisis. And so the app um, these different, you know, um, platforms might be able to say, we met the crisis. I can already imagine the advertising. In fact, it probably already exists. We've met the crisis and we provided something that wasn't there before. Why would we ever go back to something um, like it was before we could provide these apps? So I'm just curious, like, what are the terms of evaluation of whether or not it works or not? Yeah. I mean, this is great, right? So uh, time and time again, it's like the argument is what we license in crisis is going to be there on the other side. So we do have to think about it. Um, and these were debates in those first few days, like on listservs, like, should I use this or that? Some people are like, it doesn't matter. This is going to last six weeks. And other people were like, no, this is not only going to last six weeks, or I mean, we'd be really lucky. And of course, it's not what happened. Um, to prove uh, a treatment's efficacy uh, scientifically is a huge part of the story of 20th century into 21st century psych psychological treatment because certain kinds of treatment lend themselves to computational models and others don't as much. So there's only, again, a very little bit of research on like the efficacy of psychoanalysis, say. Although there's a lot of energy towards it right now and uh, trying to prove that that model works. Um, so, you know, these apps like Talkspace, BetterHelp, there are papers that argue it works in all of these ways. With Talkspace, one of the papers, um, which I believe was run in-house, um, an in-house uh, researcher, but, you know, it works in every way, save what they call the therapeutic alliance, save for the relationality. Uh, and there are other studies that show that that's not a problem in teletherapy necessary, necessarily. And others like Jillian Isaacs Russell really argue it always is. So how would Talkspace as just one example be different or better help or any of these? Um, and for me, that's not exactly what I'm, that's not the the lens that I use in my work. I'm, I'm more interested in a kind of patient and user, unfortunately, experience. And what's reported anecdotally, again, um, I can throw some links in the chat to some of the great recent journalists uh, who have dealt with this head on. Um, but it, it doesn't match with the scientific reporting necessarily. I can imagine that, and I've seen a little bit of reporting on this, that we might be looking at specific sectors too. Um, there's sort of a generalized stress of the pandemic, but particularly for essential workers, 
for nurses, for physicians, frontline um, medical practitioners, that those needs have been particularly acute. And I guess there's been a sort of a longstanding cultural issue there. I'm thinking more about first responders, um, that police and firefighters are resistant to mental health services, even when they're mandated, because it somehow seems to erode their sort of the culture um, that they have, that they're tough and don't need those yeah. Those kinds of things. There seems to have been some evolution there, but now we're we're drawing all of these others into that discussion. That looks like it'll be an important venue to see whether or not these quick interventions, more traditional in some instances, but in most instances, teletherapy, whether they've actually worked, whether they've helped. Yeah, I mean, I think right away, one of the major of the playbook of teletherapy, one of the major works were a resurgence of hotlines, but targeted hotlines. Um, So call this number if you're an emergency worker, call this number if you're an ER worker was a big thing, right? Uh, First responders and so on. And um, I know the lines were used, but actually after that, it's hard to track efficacy. Um, So use is a good sign though of, of, you know, maybe a lessening of taboo. And I think that we've seen that also as trend, right? There's a kind of softening around, the problem of therapy, whether it's the sort of younger millennials or Gen Z for sure, um, or because of the way that um, therapy has been, and I would say problematically taken up in the culture with like hashtag self-care and a kind of turn um, to being made to do it for oneself because that's all that exists. So right, we're inundated with these wellness initiatives, take five minutes outside. Uh, and for you know most people, that's not going to really cut it. Let's talk for just a second about post-traumatic stress. And so much of this pandemic was about um, the stress of day-to-day, you know, changes in day-to-day life for people who were in isolation or dealing with Zoom, as we had discussed, or anticipation of that disaster that was right around the corner, either infection or losing a job, um, being out of one's home, losing a loved one. And now we're, for many people, those who are getting vaccinated turning into a, it will be a different phase in the disaster, certainly. That doesn't mean the stress is resolved at all. And I wonder again, you know, at the mental health services in the crisis, rush to meet the moment, here's the technology, let's make it happen. Um, But this sort of longer phase, PTSD kind of phase could last a long time, right? Yeah, I mean, this will be again, a, a question of how practitioners, and not just at the individual level, right, but more uh, all the way up, think about meeting that need um, more long-term. Because again, there's the acute moment of here's a new crisis, and then there'll be how how we live in the aftermath, including psychologically, if you've been alone for an entire year, if you've lost multiple loved ones in families, which, you know, you've been reading these obituaries happen, if you've been working in the ER for a year, let alone just you know uh, the work from home, child care stress, uh, and we'll have to see. Uh, I've heard literally nothing about how to handle it from my channels. I haven't heard people mention it once, um, and that's not a good sign. That's hmm. so interesting. I mean, I one of the calls I keep coming back to is this discussion I had with sociologist Ashton Verdery, and they've been doing this grief multiplier work which is really fascinating work. And I mean, it indicates that right now we have some millions of six millions or seven millions of just in the United States of people who are actively grieving. Uh, And, you know, I don't know what percentage of them will be seeking mental health services, but if their employer or their insurance company decides at some point, Hey, the pandemic's over, that's going to create another round of, of stress for them. You're saying that right now, this is a, a dark space in the research. So we don't really know what to say about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that again, the, you know, like the COVID um, grief networks that and mutual aid, again, drawing on these long traditions of peer to peer care uh, that work, that are precious. Um, the, if, if sort of institutions and government and insurance don't do it, like we will have to do it for ourselves. And luckily I feel we, we know how. Um, this has been a long, vibrant tradition, not just in the U.S., but including in the U.S., some 70 years now. Um, and so 
of course, we wish that it wasn't a gap that we had to fill and that it was just one of the many things. Um, but I do trust that, you know, small scale um, moments of care will arise to meet some, you know, but again, we will stay, I mean, I would put non-money on it. We will stay, you know, in this mismatch of need and access and uh, practitioners, certainly on the other side. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Hannah Zeven today about teletherapy and the pandemic. We're almost up on time, but I did want to get a couple more questions in. Um, Hannah, one is sort of a question I'm going to ask you so you can answer it for me, which is how are you going to avoid this taking over? Not that you should avoid it, but the rest of your career. I mean, the questions we've been just talking about in the last hour, I mean, so much has happened in this last year. Just listing the questions um, is all consuming. And so I wonder, um, you know, and this is kind of a researcher question, like how, how are you even prioritizing these questions right now as you go forward? Well, thank you for this. I mean, I should probably off the air reflect on this question. I think one thing that, um, is true about this book is I see it as sort of one of three objects that work together. I'm working on the second volume right now. Um, but not because I'm ever going to try and get away from teletherapy. I mean, there's a reason why if you have three objects, you pick one to do first. And for me, I'm so invested in all of the multiplicity of the questions that teletherapy is going to raise. Um, care, activism, uh, you know, creative and uh, impinging and violent uses of media and technology and so on. Um, so <laughs> in just in case like my editor is ever listening to this, uh, I'm definitely hard at work on my second book and also, um, you know, deeply paying attention, writing a lot still on teletherapy that won't be in the book and um, trying to also help people more um, with a little bit of policy and advocacy as well as a way of sort of taking what I've learned, not just historically, but through the present and trying to um, pass it on outside the confines of the book. I'm glad for all of us that the timing worked such that you could think with what we were seeing with COVID in this volume of the work, it's also pretty stressful for a researcher who has a pretty finished project and then all of a sudden the world falls apart. Yeah, um, I I wrote a coda. The book had been accepted for publication and I wrote a, a coda that just deals from March to the end of June and is looking at teletherapy uh, during the uprisings and uh, the pandemic, but I dated it because I didn't want it to stand for anything more than it was. Um, and so everything else will have to be another time in another place. So just one last question for you, and it's something you mentioned a moment ago. How do works um, like yours or others, and you've been very generous in mentioning other uh, scholars and other journalists working in this area around teletherapy, how, how is the uptake in policy circles? What are the channels where policy makers are at any scale are listening to this, engaging this work? Because I think in two main areas, mental health services and also elder care, yeah. we have got to see some serious changes at this time. Uh, otherwise, what, why was this all shown to us if we can't address the needs of the most vulnerable? Yeah. Um I can say that the book isn't out yet and I'm being contacted with some frequency either for just like a, a little bit of help or more large scale questions about, I think that that is understood. The question is then how does it escape even the policy institute and be put into, you know, praxis? Again, that's where I am more hopeful about small scale initiatives that are in communities for communities by communities, but also now that Alondra Nelson works for uh, Joseph Biden's government, I feel also much more hopeful than I would have that all of this uh, will at least be, you know, more top of mind. And because, you know, Alondra Nelson starts, you know, with the, the first project is about the Black Panthers. And again, the small scale doing it for the self uh, that then becomes national and the work is just uh, incredible. So that that was like my bright spot of the last four months, maybe. 
Well, just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow, I'm going to have a repeat uh, visitor. really been uh, excited to get him back on COVID Calls. I'll be talking to Peter Chin Hong, physician and medical educator who we spoke to back in June of 2020 and gave extraordinary discussion about uh, frontline workers in the pandemic. So please do tune in for that tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. And I just want to thank Hannah Zeeben for opening my mind on on the historical dimensions of um, teletherapy. Thanks so much for this work and for making time to talk today, Hannah. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time.